definitely figure out your calling, your mission, know your values, know who you are. That makes it a lot easier through the bad times, especially. Once you know really who you are and what you want to build, how you want to impact, when the going gets tough, it gives you that resilience to pull through. When people doubt you, at least you still have that confidence and that resilience to carry on. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the I Impact podcast, the podcast that aims to redefine and expand the boundaries of a social impact career. I'm Abby, and alongside my co-host, Elise, we are so excited you are joining us in our journey of finding purpose in our professions. Today, we are joined by my dear friend and mentor, Vahinia Lee. Hi, Bahinia. We are so excited to have you. Thank you for taking the time to share your journey and experiences with us and our audience. To start, we're going to provide everyone with a little bit of background on you. Bahinia is an impact venture builder advocate and the co-founder of Anima Ventures, a venture builder. She has a mission that is twofold. Firstly, she supports, builds, and invests in very early stage startups based in Hong Kong. And secondly, she focuses on teams with at least one female co-founder. Outside of work and advocacy, she loves to read, discuss philosophy, and watch Indian and foreign language films. So today's podcast will focus on two main topics. First, Bohemia's path to becoming an entrepreneur and her insights in the Asia startup space. And second, incorporating impact and mission into a successful venture. I'm so excited to start off with the first question. Bohemia, your path to creating Anima Ventures was not a linear one. You've worked in different industries, worked all over the world. How has these experiences shaped you as a person and your decision to create Anima Ventures? It's been definitely a whirlwind. and it's definitely been a non-linear journey. And I think it's most entrepreneurs will tell you entrepreneurship is just non-linear and how you get into it, it's always very different for everyone. So there's no one way to get into it first. But I think to start from the very beginning, I guess we go back to when I started in finance. And so after graduation in London, I did get into finance as a career. I learned a lot. It was a good journey of growth in terms of knowledge and learning and how to behave in a corporate environment. But finance is still a very much male-dominated industry. In Asia, you still see a lot of women being uncomfortable in these kinds of growy environments. So I came across some female organizations, young empowerment or like motherhood, returning to work types of organizations in finance, in my firm and outside. And uh, I got involved and so I became a young advocate. So I've always been in female empowerment. And from that, within finance, I was still trying to see where the road would take me. And whilst I was in corporate finance, I managed to find a TEDx talk featuring a woman literally my age. And she had started one of America's first male-led and female-founded VC called Sogal Ventures. So through reading a lot more about them and hearing the TED talk and just doing some general stalking, and after a cold email outreach to the managing partner of the firm, she suggested I started growing like a community, a global community that they were building because they didn't have one in Europe at the time. So I then got involved with that kind of community building and understanding female entrepreneurship in London. So that really kickstarted my whole journey. And lo and behold, I moved back to Hong Kong. I got into the startup scene. I had to reconfigure my whole network again because I had to build everything from scratch. And I had to learn about Hong Kong, the culture here, startups here. And uh, it was through joining a Singapore tech startup by market launching for them in Hong Kong and Taiwan that I just came across all of these startups in Hong Kong. And that was essentially how my journey began really powerful with 
Mima Ventures after you got into the Hong Kong startup space? What then sparked this decision that you're going to start this venture and at this time and this place? Timing is really important. So when I was starting my path in the startup scene and building my network from zero in Hong Kong, I still had my entrepreneurial mindset. I guess you never stop looking or you never try and observe patterns or see what are, where the holes are. So when I started doing that, because I was a business development manager and a market launcher, you just have to talk to so many types of startups. I think talk to more than 300 in a year and a half. So through these conversations, this is where you really get to know people in the scene. You become friends with them. You hear their growth pains, their hiring pains. You hear about the funding ecosystem and how that relates to how startups grow or don't grow here. And I was hearing a lot of these stories, anecdotes, and it was chiming in with my own conversations outside of the startup scene. And through that, I felt a little bit perturbed with certain holes, gaps in the ecosystem. And I thought, hey, there must be a lot that we can do here. And at the same time, past three years with COVID, with political situation in Hong Kong, it was really a lot of destabilization and there was a lot of despondency and a lot of despair actually in Hong Kong. And through that, I wanted to be a problem solver and to bring a little bit of hope and optimism back into the ecosystem rather than just complain and really become despondent and think, hey, there's nothing we can do about this. Quit my job in that HR tech startup from Singapore and through that, I was exploring my own ideas, trying to think what I could do. Would I start another startup or would I become capital allocator? So these were things that I had to work with. And then also thinking about my background. Yes, I might come from finance, but I still don't have the same kind of networks within finding your LPs, i.e. investors who invest into a fund or basically very high net worth individuals who do have the capital to invest in, in, in young people. So I was like, Oh, I don't have any of these yet still. I, I do know my startup. So I needed that one year, which I gave myself to figure out the investment thesis, really my mission and my calling, and then also building up my network again in, in the funding. But essentially, that was my journey. And those were the things that sparked Anima Ventures. Thank you so much, Bahinia, for sharing your story. Diving into a bit of details here, your venture focuses on empowering female-founded companies. And of course, you are a female founder yourself. Personally, what are some of the challenges that you face as a female founder and how have you worked to overcome those? The emphasis here is less on the female, but I think generally as founders go through a lot of the same kinds of challenges at the very beginning to do with confidence to do with the networks, to do with finding your first clients, right? But as a young female founder, you do get a few more setbacks or a little more teething issues here and there. But I wouldn't say that is 100% like the obstacle that I went through. But I have to say, I, I do look very young for my age, which is a blessing. It's definitely a blessing. Asian and I don't genes. come exactly Asian genes, right? And my family genes. So I'm not complaining about that. But when I went to meetings when I was at the startup, people would think, oh, are you the intern? Or you've probably just graduated, right? So I was like, no, I graduated quite a while ago. And this is what, like my fifth job. I would say all the time, most people don't believe that I'm a venture builder, that this is my company until I tell them. And I would say in general, right? Women don't tend to come from finance as regularly as men do in general. So when they do go into starting their own business, 
networks is the most important thing. So of course you can bootstrap your way, but when you have a little bit of funding like angels or friends and families who can chip in a little bit, perhaps some women might find it more difficult because either friends who might not have accumulated capital to put in that money, or they just don't have those readily available investor networks from their previous jobs in finance or investment banking that they can tap into. I would say this is in general, women might have a disadvantage. Definitely. And building a little bit more on that for listeners who may be female founders or women who want to start their own ventures, what advice would you give them in navigating this space? And for those who have found success, how can they also empower other women to do the same as you are? I would say don't quit your job without anything straight away. Always have a side hustle, right? Always have a project that you're building. Like you guys, you two ladies, you are building your podcast through your first season. And that is really great to utilize your creativity, to understand priorities, time management, connecting with people, building that network, right? So all of these things are skills that you can acquire and keep building when you have a side hustle or project that you work on outside of your main job or outside of being a student. First of all, it really helps you prioritize. Secondly, it really helps you understand yourself a lot more. Okay, is this really for me? Do I have the chops to do this? Do I like this kind of entrepreneurial life and having to make my own decisions, being accountable, being creative? The third thing is it helps you gain confidence when you're already building something rather than quitting and then not knowing because it is all uncertain. So when you are actually building something, it gives you that confidence that you've been there before, whatever growth pains you've had, you know, how tired you feel or that fatigue. So before you actually go full-time into entrepreneurship, if you have gone through what it's like to side hustle or do creative work outside, it really helps. So that's definitely the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is, and I think I gave Ethan this, always carrying a book or jot down notes on your phone because wherever you go, you should always be very observant. Ideas don't just come to us like that all the time. Some people are lucky and some people, you know, cannot sleep because there's one problem that they really want to solve that they just know about. But a lot of problems come either from like general life or it comes from work, actually. So when you're at work, for example, you might be in your second year, third year of work. Notice the inefficiencies. Notice maybe complaints around you. It's like, oh, this isn't working. Figure out the why and the how. So whilst you're doing that job, you can always be observing. And of course, when it's not going well, it makes the job really uncomfortable. It might feel unfulfilling. But on the flip side, the optimism is that there's definitely a problem there. So maybe you can be the one to solve it. And then at the same time, if you then try and build a prototype or build on your idea of what you've observed on the side, then you will see if this is your passion. Because another thing is, do you have the chops for it? Do you have the perseverance? In order to have both those things, you do need to have the passion for it. It might not be passion, like I live and breathe it, but it has to be something that you really want to solve or you just go to bed thinking about or wake up thinking about. Otherwise, if you cannot break past a Monday and be like, yay, I am wanting to do this. I'm up for this. It's 6 a.m. I'm okay to start my week. Then it's not going to last. 
Thank you for that fantastic advice. I particularly love the be observant and just building on that. Be curious everywhere you are, whether that's in your current job, whether that's awesome or not, there's always possibility to see new things and you never know when kind of those observations and curiosities and lessons and conversations people will lead in the future. So thank you. Continuing with the startup scene, we would love to hear, in your opinion, how the startup scene in Asia compares to the startup scene in the U.S., and what do you think are some advantages and opportunities for growth in Asia that make it a wonderful place to start a venture? Yeah, so big differences in the U.S. It's definitely more vibrant, more startups. In Asia, it's a big region. We cannot compare Southeast Asia to North Asia, which is China, which is its own beast. And then we cannot compare that to Northeast Asia, which is Korea, Japan, or even Hong Kong. Southeast Asia is definitely a burgeoning and growing scene. They have a lot of inefficiencies in different markets, in the consumer markets, and even in their infrastructure. And they've all launched over the past decade into going fully digital. They skipped a lot of steps. So, for example, fintech payments, digital payments, all of these things are thriving in Southeast Asia. In the U.S., in comparison... The consumer space is a big market. So there's a lot of people, a lot of demographic that you can be testing your product on, that you can be building on. So the consumer space is thriving in the US. Definitely harder in Asia because if you want to launch all across Asia, especially in the consumer space, you really have to localize. So when you go from market to market, it takes a lot more than going right out in the US. So these are really the biggest differences. Another thing is in Hong Kong specifically, We have less as a service compared to the U.S. People in the U.S. probably have less of a conservative mentality in terms of trying new tools, speaking to like BDs, business development people. In Asia, they might be a little bit more reserved about it. It's harder to build those relationships. Those are the growth pains, I guess, it's in relation to the maturity of the ecosystem, right? Startup scene in Silicon Valley has been growing from what the 60s in the U.S. So it's not really comparable. In Asia, it's still growing at a very fast pace. But yes, Asia is not a monolith. It's definitely characterized by different parts of Asia. So I can't generalize there, but, you know, most of it is thriving. Thank you for giving us that breakdown of the different regions and especially in Asia. I wanted to ask, you've mentored a lot of youth. You've talked to a lot of people and you speak at a lot of different events. What are some qualities that youth can cultivate who may want to enter the VC entrepreneurship space in Hong Kong or Asia specifically? Yeah, so those are two different things, VC and entrepreneurship. I would say the classic in Hong Kong, the classic VC route is did investment banking or private equity or investment banking and private equity and then I go into VC. The thing is, if you want to be a good VC and you want to be able to empathize and really be a good support to your portfolio companies, i.e. the entrepreneurs, you do need to have some startup experience. So it does help if you go work for a startup or you try and build something yourself to really understand how hard it is and the growth pains. Like something as simple as recruiting is incredibly hard because you think about it, right? Yes, you might have just fundraised, but then, you know, you're still not a very well-known company. How do you attract young, talented people to come work for you? How do you build a culture and maintain it amongst a small team of people? And then once you grow, how do you keep maintaining that culture? All of these things are things you might not get if you've never worked in a startup before. So I would say if you want to be a good VC, do try and work in a startup. But I think for VCs in general, key skills that you need to have are like good networks. You're only as good as your net work as a VC because you need to come across just lots and lots of different founders, right? 
you need to come across deals in order to evaluate them and then bring them to your superior. So i.e. the GPs in your firm. As a VC, you'll need some kind of quantitative skills. You need to build a good network amongst founders. And uh, I would say also build empathy, like all those different communication skills, the types of soft skills that one would require. Definitely a VC needs that. You need to really have, you need to love the startup scene. Otherwise, why would you get into it in the first place, right? You might as well just stay in investment banking. And the second part, right, then on, as an entrepreneur or a startup founder, what are the skills or what do you see in people? I think the general traits are you definitely need some kind of grit and resilience. So important. Super tough journey. Super uncertain. It's an absolute grind day in, day out doing the same thing. As a founder doing sales and BD, if you've never done that before, gosh, go try it. It's so hard, right? Really takes a lot out of you. And you just have to keep going back and hammering it, knocking on those doors to get your first clients. The grit and resilience is to help you fail forwards and be able to bring yourself back up from either failing or getting lots of rejections. That's well, number one. Number two is growth mindset and humility. They both go together. And I think the growth mindset, of course, you're always learning, right? As an entrepreneur, there's going to be a million things that you don't know that's uncertain. So you'll feel vulnerable all the time, but it's okay that you don't know any, everything. No one expects you to know everything. That's why you hire people or find complementary co-founders who can help you with the skills that you lack or the expertise that you lack. But you need to have that growth mindset in order to be open for feedback because you will be getting constant feedback and you will be having to understand your vulnerabilities and work through that. And then second of all, humility. Humility is also a part of empathy. It's a part of wanting to learn and knowing that there's just so much more to learn. And even when you're 80 and you're always on that learning journey. So we don't have humility. It makes you a less interesting and less agreeable person to work with and want to collaborate with. And as a startup founder, you need to be constantly collaborating and you need people to like you or at least like your mission and what you're doing and how you interact with them in order to form these relationships with them. Without humility, then I think that would give you a barrier to work with people and to relate with them. And then you have hunger and single-mindedness. So this is also on a spectrum, right? So yes, you do need hunger and you do need to be single-minded because working on a single product and then having to refine it many times, you need focus in order to do that. And if you're not someone that's hungry with some kind of ambition, then it's very hard to keep carrying through. So if you're super ambitious and super hungry and you're okay to step over people and to maybe lose your integrity and become unethical in your business practices and how you approach people, then that's also not good, right? In general, you just don't want to lose your integrity in building businesses and should always be ethical. So if you're too hungry, you might veer towards that. But if you're not hungry enough, then it's hard to sustain that kind of motivation. And then lastly, I will say empathy. This is for everyone, to be honest. But as a startup founder, you're always contacting people. So I think you have to understand your market and people that you serve. You're also building teams. You're recruiting people. Definitely need empathy there. Empathy is very important just to show good leadership. Thank you, Bahinia. Clearly, there are so many skills that everyone listening and ourselves included can continue to cultivate and improve upon. So we will remember those. Thank you. We're also talking a lot right now about the importance of networking. When you first got into the startup space in Hong Kong, you said you had to network a lot to get an understanding of the space and to pitch your idea for Anima Ventures. 
what are some tips for how do we actually practically expand our network to set us up for success, especially, for example, in situations where people are looking to move into new spaces or pivot their careers completely and are starting with a blank slate? That's a very good question. And I do get asked that quite a lot. How do you create your networks? There's a really good book by Reid Hoffman. It's called The Startup of You. Definitely recommend to everyone because he talks specifically in the middle chapter on building your networks. So you always have family, friends, maybe your immediate colleagues. This is your immediate network. But actually, more interesting job offers or interesting kinds of connections between people, they might not come from your best friends or the people that you see regularly all the time, right? So what you need to do is expand out of this core. Keep growing your concentric circles. And there are different ways of doing this. One, you can always ask your friends, of course, oh, is there someone in the space who blah, 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 refer me? Great, definitely do that. When you are, let's say, in front office, if you're in finance, or perhaps you could work in sales or BD, one, you train your sales skills, right? Two, you just have to meet a lot of outside people if you're in these types of front-facing jobs. So you can strategically move roles into these kinds of areas so that you start building those skills and network there. Another way is utilize LinkedIn very strategically and nicely. I think I met Evelyn through LinkedIn, if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, we did. I saw an event which Bohemia was in and I was like, wow, this person sounds amazing. She's building Nima Ventures and the mission of empowering female founders really lands on mine. So I reached out and that's how we met. Exactly. So the specifics of that have an interesting profile. The executive summary at the top of LinkedIn, write something super interesting about yourself. Not just what I do in my job, but what do you do outside? So this is also helps. If you have side projects, whatever things you like to research on, I don't mean like R&D type of research, but just read more on or things you like to talk about or write about, put that down in the executive summary. Because when people look at that, they're like, I want to know you as a person, not just what your job entails. In most conversations, outside of like those 10 minutes on the core business transaction-y part of the conversation, you want to be able to talk about other things outside of business, right? Outside of your job. That's what makes a conversation memorable and that person memorable. So definitely besides side project helping you build those skills, it's also to just make you more interesting as a person that when people look you up, they have something to refer to. In terms of connecting with people. So when you see these type of executive summaries, a lot of like older, more experienced people have a board level, non-executive directorships, right? So maybe they support a cause or they're on like an NGO that's super interesting. Mention that when you cold reach out to them, right? So when you write these messages, always personalize as much as possible. And as a young person as well, do that because nobody minds receiving these kinds of messages from young people. So you already have a natural advantage there. So just get to know that person. Don't think I need this person specifically for this thing, but just, I just want to know a bit more about you, like making a friend. And it makes it easier and it puts less pressure on it. And you have to make effort. Once you make a connection, maintain. Doesn't mean you have to write to them every week. You do have to maintain it every few months. Or if you've read an article, send them an update thinking, oh, I read this and it reminded me of our conversation. It has to be reciprocal and there has to be an effort. Otherwise, it just dies. So yeah, these are very specific networking tips that one can start with. That's really helpful. And I think that a lot of 
of our audiences, especially will be university students. And networking is just so important when it comes to just exploring different fields and getting your foot in the door and building upon how I found you on LinkedIn. I think something from day one, I noticed you're just very successful at building a brand for yourself of being an impact-driven entrepreneur who's really passionate about mentorship, about female empowerment. And so what are some of the main strategies that allowed you to get your word out there for Anima Ventures? That's a good question. Brand building. I'm definitely not a PR expert, but there are certain things that you can do. And I think the first thing is you shouldn't set your mission out there just to say, I want to be famous or I want to be well-known and then set about doing that being your ultimate goal. It can be an outcome, right? Like a byproduct of a goal that you're trying to fulfill. But if that's the only goal that you have, then I think that's unhealthy and it would put a lot of pressure on yourself. So I think always know who you are, like definitely figure that out, where you stand, what your values are, what your position is in the mission you're trying to accomplish, whether it's advocacy, whether it's starting your own company, building a product, or even your side product, know your passions, the values, where that direction is going. And then slowly you'll be able to paint like a vision board for yourself. Oh, this is what I'm about. And then once you know that, your messaging can be consistent. So Anima Ventures is all about helping early stage founders, very early stage, based in Hong Kong, and have to have at least one female co-founder. I'm all about female empowerment, right? So then I'm like, these are the only things that I talk about besides youth mentorship. When you are consistent to that message, when you're absolutely passionate about it, the sort of regularity that you have, the cadence that you have to do in order to maintain that kind of brand building, writing stuff, posting pictures on social media, putting in comments on other people's posts, that allows you to raise your profile. When you are naturally very passionate about something, it becomes easier to showcase your energy for other people to feel that energy and for that to really shine through and know that is what you are about. So then when they see either maybe a podcast episode or something that you've written or a comment that you have made, people can tell through the words spoken or written that you are passionate about it or that do have an informed opinion or perspective that you want to share. So when you create, let that shine through. Don't be uh, shy. And I was telling Evie this, like, don't be shy in writing your perspectives. Everyone has their own perspectives. Whatever you're studying, whatever you've gone through, you can add your own tilt to it, your own angle. And so when it shines through, when other people come across, they might want to get to know you or that persona that you put out there further. And so I think once you start putting yourself out there, there's going to be more chances for people to reach out to you, either for a public speaking event or for you to publish something with them, or I don't know, co-create a program with them, or try and even look for you as a co-founder in an idea that they're trying to build, right? So the more you put yourself out there consistently and with some kind of mission and values that is quite obvious, then it's easier for people to identify you and be able to pick you for different things. Thank you so much, Bahinia, for sharing that. And I think it's so important. All of these tips and ideas you're sharing is at the core of it to build your own brand. It really needs to be introspective and really get at what is your passion? What is your purpose? Kind of in the same family as thinking about our own personal brands, we'd love to chat a little bit about personal values. You talk a lot about mission and purpose. And a part of that is understanding and developing your career and personal values. Do you have any advice for us and our audiences on how to develop these values and how to align the personal with the professional values? 
I will reveal that I did personal coaching, like career coaching in my mid-20s, back in the day when I was struggling with my path in finance. My coach gave me a really good tip. And she was saying like, okay, have three tables, three columns, and list out your personal values, list out your career values and list out skills that you would like to attain. And then there was also a timeline that I had to do. Put yourself forward five years and think, where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? And then you can work and engineer it backwards and saying, okay, I need to have done this thing or achieved this, acquired these kinds of skills in order to make this stage. So I did this kind of exercise, which is quite MBA-ish, but it was very helpful in understanding my values. And when I said career values versus personal values, what is that? Surely it's just values in general, right? She did say, look, on any kind of job, what do you want to be? What is important to you? Is it building good relationships? That can be a value. Is it about interesting kind of content that you have to come across every day? Or is it about learning that you just learning is such a valuable thing for you? So listing all of these things as a career value helps you understand what you want out of a job or what you want out of building a company or becoming an entrepreneur. And then versus personal values is as a person, maybe I would say, I want to have integrity. I want to be ethical. I want to build good relationships. I value people. I value young people and mentorship. I love nurturing. These are different kinds of values that also, for my case, overlap with my professional values. The reason why you should list them side by side is that if you have a set of personal values and they don't, none of them or very few match with your professional values in the second column, then it's, it might be very hard to continue on a job and be able to fulfill both sides of you. It's going to be very hard to sustain that job and still feel you at the same time being authentic to yourself. And then in terms of that timeline that I was talking about, I mean, at first I was like, gosh, that sounds like a lot of pressure, right? But it's really just using your imagination to be like, oh, in five years or when I'm 35, I want to be doing this. In my timeline, at the time I thought, oh, I probably want to start some kind of hedge fund when I was in my mid-20s. Big ambitions there. But I'm not actually that far off. I don't have a fund with LPs, but I'm a venture builder. We have some funds, me and my business partner, where we invest. So it is some kind of fund. And I also thought, oh, I'll probably be doing some public speaking in my like mid-30s. I started doing that in my early 30s, so I'm not that far off. So actually, yeah, having that timeline helps you think bigger, not be afraid. When you are able to engineer it backwards, thinking, okay, at this stage, I'll probably need these kinds of skills. And then you'll have to figure out, oh, what kinds of side projects should I develop? Or what types of roles should I take on next in order to acquire these skills? That helps you think a little bit ahead so you don't surprise yourself two years when you start working like every quarter just passes by so quickly and then you'll be chasing life itself so it's good to be able to think further ahead those are all really great tips and i feel as university students it's so applicable because we're at a time right now where we can explore we can really dream big think about what careers we want to go down or like all these skills that we would want to develop and then also thinking about like five ten years down the line where do i want to see myself all that thinking doing that when you're younger definitely will help so thank you for sharing those tips and it's really great to see that you have reached this point of being able to build anima ventures which is at the intersection of your personal and professional values. We would love to hear more about what your goals are for the next five years and what are you most excited about when it comes to Anima Ventures. Going to the timeline for your ventures. Yeah, <laughs> right there. <laughs> for sure. 
okay, I'm going to be a little bit realistic. I'm in my first year starting and I'm a venture builder, not a VC. So we cannot spread ourselves too thin. I would say I would like in the next five years to have impacted at least five female co-founded and not just that i would like them to be earning sustainable revenue and to have sustainable growth that's the anima ventures side the business side the second part of it is i would love 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 to keep raising the voices and exposure of female founders in the ecosystem especially women who are doing impact something that is impactful for society and women who are in the deep end of tech I would love more women in these sectors to have a voice because I still think when we think, at least in Hong Kong or in Asia, think of a successful entrepreneur, a woman will probably not come in the top five for most people, even young people. I really would like to keep advocating for more women to have that exposure, for young people to have access to this exposure, i.e. through networks or through media where they can see them, be inspired and have the aspiration. And then also, I would like more young people to understand a little bit more about startups and entrepreneurship, that it can be a viable career. I would like more young people to figure themselves out more, to know what having a fulfilling career or fulfilling company means, building a fulfilling company means, and have a taste of that. And also, in the next five years, I would love for our ecosystem to keep growing and to have more impactful founders. So that means I have to keep building this network and nurturing it. And hopefully more people do the same thing as I do and my friends do. And that's how we grow and that's how we can grow together and not at the expense of each other. It is so exciting to hear that we have leaders in the imp social impact startup space like you, Bohemia, especially for Hong Kong. And I'm just really excited to see how Anima Ventures grows. Thank you very yes. much. Thank you so much. Our time is coming to an end. This has been such a special conversation. So thank you, Bahinia, for being here with us. Before we all sign off, we'd love to squeeze out one final nugget of wisdom from you, or rather two to three, actually. Would you be able to share to our listeners two to three of the biggest or most important takeaways from your journey of integrating your passion into your career and having an impact? You definitely figure out your calling, your mission know your values, know who you are. That makes it a lot easier through the bad times, especially. Once you know really who you are, what you want to build, how you want to impact, when the going gets tough, it gives you that resilience to pull through. But it also gives you more self-confidence. When people doubt you, when you're like presenting, pitching, trying to do your BD, when people doubt you, at least you still have that confidence and that resilience to carry on. So that's important. Secondly, have your crew have your safety net, maybe some would call it. It's important, especially when you're building as an entrepreneur or I guess as a leader of any kind of organization. Definitely emotionally, you'll need your backup crew, your friends and people in operating in the entrepreneurial space who understand what you're going through. So you, need, you do need to have a crew that understand that mentality, that sort of pace of life, the priorities, the things you give up for trying to become an entrepreneur. You need that tight-knit network to help you through and also this is I would say peer-to-peer -peer coaching they give you good advice because either they've been there and done that a little bit earlier than you so they can give you that kind of very helpful tip and then the third thing is I guess have fun have fun yeah. building have Woo! fun creating your network right if it's something that you just you've been building for a while and you're just absolutely miserable then then it's 
it's not fun for anyone, not fun for your team, your co-founders, your family, yourself. Just also, of course, having an impact, being able to impact people, communities with your product, very important, but have fun and forgive yourself. There will be days that it's not fun, but try and have as much fun as possible. And when it comes to networking, I always think it's fun, right? That curiosity makes it fun. So don't think of networking as a chore or as something that's really tiresome and horrendous and you don't want to do. It's fun to get to know other people. Bring that curiosity in. Learn like a five-year-old, maybe like a 10-year-old. And you'll make good friends in the process, whatever age they might be. Amazing. That is such a wonderful note to end off our podcast on. Thank you so much, Bahinia, for coming on again. And we've had a lovely time. Thank you, Bert. Thank you.